New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. There is a fierce urgency confronting us to act on the many opportunities to reimagine a world that works for all. Will a movement to improve the health of our communities and of our planet happen in one gigantic tide of awakening? Or will it be sourced on the local level, coming in a less flashy way from the grassroots level? Our guests today suggest that the kind of sustainable systems change that is required in these threshold times is now being modeled on local levels across the country. Discover what Sarah Van Gelder has learned about the many dynamic movements taking root around the country as she traveled 12,000 miles across America. Sarah Van Gelder is co-founder and editor-at-large of the award-winning Yes magazine. She writes and speaks internationally on environmental, social, and economic alternatives and on community-based change. She's the editor of Sustainable Happiness, Live Simply, Live Well, Make a Difference, and This Changes Everything, Occupy Wall Street and the 99% Movement. She's the author of The Revolution Where You Live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. Join us for the next hour as we explore the dynamic movement of the positive community-based changes that are taking place around the country and around the world with our guest, Sarah Van Gelder. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Justine. It's great to have you. Sarah, I would love, before we launch into your 12,000-mile journey, let's, let's go back to your early childhood. And you tell a story about your being very young and living in India, where you first realize the disparity of wealth and, and really recognize poverty, extreme poverty for the first time. Can you describe that for us? Sure. Um, I went to India with my family. I was just seven years old. My dad had a teaching exchange. So we were living on a university campus. And one day we borrowed a vehicle from the, from the college and went out to the countryside to have a picnic and spread out our blankets on the, on the grass and got out our food and then looked around and started realizing there was a group of young people watching us. And the longer we were there, the more the crowd grew. 
And gradually it dawned on me, I was just seven years old, but gradually it dawned on me that those kids were probably hungry, that we weren't just a, a, an exotic, different thing in their life, but we were also represented something that was out of reach for them. And I remember feeling like, you know, this, this, these eggs that I'm eating, they're kind of drying up in my mouth, that, that somehow this is just not okay. And the same thing would happen to me when I was out on the streets and I would be f- surrounded by young children who were begging for food or begging for money. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm t- I don't understand what this is about. I don't understand why I should have the privilege of waking up every morning knowing I would have enough to eat and going to bed every night knowing I'd have shelter over my head and why these other children wouldn't have that. So that was one of the questions that really animated my life. I just felt like I needed to understand that. And then I needed to use the privilege I had because I did have that foundation of security to do something about it, to to do what I could to make the world a fairer place. Which takes us into, I'm going to fast forward now uh, to the recent past and that's when you were in visiting in Oakland, you were visiting um, a friend. Akaya uh, Windwood? Yes, Akaya right. Windwood. Mm-hmm. And she posed a question to you, which launched this whole trip. Can you describe that question? Sure. So uh, about 20 years ago, we founded Yes Magazine to look at some of the really big challenges that we're facing as a human civilization. I think especially about inequality. There's now 20 people in our country who have more wealth than half of the American population. And I think about things like the climate crisis, which is unrolling much more quickly than I think a lot of us had expected, and certainly scientists had expected. And I think about things like the racial divide, which has been so much a part of our history and all the trauma that goes with it. And yet we haven't figured out how to really start healing that. So I, I brought these these quandaries to Akaya, who's, who's an old friend of mine, and and, and she asked me a question that that you know, she's one of those people that doesn't do small talk. She doesn't just sort of say, oh, well, that's nice. She asked me this question. She said, so if the universe could deploy the one small person that is you, what would it have you do? And it took me aback. And then I heard myself say something which I hadn't expected to say, which is, well, I think I'd go out and look for myself. I'd look for myself for answers because there's only so much you can discover staying safely inside your office and reporting via the help of freelance writers and and other staff at Yes Magazine. At a certain point, you just have to go out and see for yourself. And especially I wanted to go to places on the margins of society, places that aren't as bought into the status quo, like Indian reservations, like the Rust Belt, like Appalachia. And find out what are people doing in those places, in the places that are already, in some respects, already pretty far down the road to collapse in terms of the economic foundations of their lives. And, and find out what, what are people choosing to do? How are people voting with their feet and voting with their hands? Because I don't think we can sit in our offices and make up ideas about what another society might be like. But I think as journalists, we can report on what people are choosing to do and what kind of world they're choosing to create. And so you went home and bought yourself a used truck with a little camper and got some people to paint on the side, and uh, you launched, launched. And uh, I think one of the first uh, stops that you talk about in the book was Montana, 
is one of the major ones. And so I I know that you've described like you had an idea. I I think I'm quoting you pretty, or at least you thought that this was going to be a wasteland, but you found something quite different. Even even though the realities were very stark, there was something quite different. So you entered Montana and describe for us how you even got to know anyone. North of Seattle, I live just outside Seattle, and north of Seattle, the Lummi tribe had been battling a large coal export terminal that was proposed for their traditional lands and that would have had a devastating effect on their fisheries. So I got to wondering, why would they need to build a brand new coal export terminal, the largest in the country? Where was all that coal going to come from? So I did a little research and found out it was it was proposed to come from this place in southeast Montana called the Otter Creek Valley. And, you know, I, I don't I don't know that much about the eastern part of Montana, but I, I sort of know it's, you know, you've gotten past the really beautiful mountains and everything. I thought, well, maybe it's just kind of scrubby, you know, unattractive land and, you know, who knows? Maybe nobody will miss it. But I wanted to find out. So I was able to do that because I was now mobile in this little truck and camper. I went out to southeast Montana. I camped on the land of Elena Buffalo's, Buffalo Spirit, who's a member of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. She kindly invited me to stay with her and to talk about why she and other members of the tribe are opposing this mine. And I also interviewed a number of ranchers who are also working together with the members of the Northern Cheyenne tribe to, to try to stop this, what would be the largest coal strip mine in the state of Montana. So it was, the valley itself was beautiful. It was this quiet little valley with a little creek running down it. It's right up against the Custer National Forest, which is these, you know, they're not the dramatic rocky mountains, but there's these little rocky outcroppings. It's so quiet there. I remember when I, when I was walking down the road to explore that, that area a little bit, that it was so quiet that every step I took was, seemed loud because mm-hmm. there was so little else except for the, the sound of running water and a few little birds in the, in the bushes. And I could see through the eyes of the people I interviewed just how precious that land is. For the ranchers, they talked about how they had been there for generations. Their families had, had ranched that land. They talked about their responsibility to take this incredible resource that they had inherited and make sure that their children and grandchildren had the same opportunity to live on such beautiful country. And for the Native people, you know, the, the legacy is, is far older and far deeper. And they too were talking about the sacredness of the land and the water. And the thing that I was so struck by when I listened to them talk is that, that they all were talking about that sacredness in some of the same terms. Maybe they learned it from one another, but I think in a way they learned it from the land itself and from the water itself, that there's something so sacred about that, that they were willing to do the hard work of reading those environmental statements and going to testify and traveling hundreds of miles to the state capitol and then thousands of miles to the U.S. capitol and, and keeping at it month after month and year after year because they know that that was their one shot at keeping that land intact. So, all right, that, that's a great, you've given us a great kind of view, and there are some principles in there that I want to talk about because 
they were actually successful, and in, in the end, they shut down that that whole operation. And but this, as you say, can't, can't, didn't come without a lot of effort. So it was a community effort. And the first thing I noticed was this woman. The, the, the coal company had offered. I'm, I, maybe I'm getting some stories mixed up, but but these corporations offer a lot of money. And so they come in, and it seems like it's going to be a real blessing. And so the first thing that a community needs to do, in my opinion, and I think you support this in your travels, is to educate ourselves. And so when when you know the full impact of... Okay, I'm buying into this. It seems like a good idea. Now, what? What's the? What is it really? So, what do you have to say about that? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's easy to get swayed by money, and that was certainly the case in in another story I tell there from North Dakota, where one tribe was inundated with fracking and with uh, uh, all sorts of um, all sorts of development of the back and oil oil fields that has brought huge amounts of money through the tribe, but also caused enormous hardship of all kinds, including uh, radioactive waste spread around on the reservation and human trafficking and crime and corruption. And then another tribe, this is in North Dakota, another tribe having learned from them. That other tribe, having learned from them, we're going to talk about that one in just one moment. I'm here with Sarah Van Gelder, She's the author of The Revolution Where You Live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. And to know more about her work, you can go to her website, revolutionwhereyoulive.org, O-R-G. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Sarah Van Gelder, and she is the author of The Revolution Where You Lived, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. And we were talking about, we're talking about the, the tribes that are affected by the oil fields, the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota. And you were just about to say something about um, the first tribe that really got devastated through the efforts of this corporate corporation doing these oil fields. Now, the second tribe was... was the Turtle Mountain Chippewa in northern North Dakota. 
And in that case, the story I heard when I went there was that an elder from the tribe called the women together, and she said, it's the traditional responsibility of the women to take care of the water. So we should understand what's going on with fracking because that's coming our, our way. So she brought these women together, and one of them, the one, one of them that I interviewed said, you know, originally I thought it would be great if we could have more oil production on our, our reservation because we're really poor and we could use some money. But then when she started looking into it, what had happened in Fort Berthold, where, where the boom has been well underway, and what the possible effects would be on the water, which they hold to be so sacred, these beautiful lakes they have in that part of North Dakota, an incredibly pristine aquifer. You know, when they started realizing the possible implications, they just got very alarmed and brought it to the tribal council and said, you know, we have to stop this before it gets started. So they held, the tribal council held a couple of community meetings and the whole community agreed and they voted unanimously to ban fracking on their reservation. So when I was there, a couple of years after that decision, I interviewed the tribal chairman and said, so how do you feel about that decision? You know, you've left millions of dollars on the table that you could have, have gotten from royalties, uh, from, uh, from leasing that land. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, I've learned that... Uh, that what they say about money doesn't buy happiness is true. All I have to do is look at Fort Berthold. They, they don't seem to be very happy with all their money. And he said, you know, I've, I believe in making money the old-fashioned way. And this tribal chairman is a small business owner. He, he feels like, you know, you, you make money through small business. You don't make it by extracting the wealth of the land in a way that degrades it so that the future generations won't have access right. to it. So then when I was leaving, I stopped by to see the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Community College, which has this, I didn't know why they, they kept telling me I should go visit it. But I realized when I got there, there's this great, big, beautiful windmill over the top of the college. And I researched it later and found out that, yes, indeed, they're, they're investing heavily in renewable energy, which they can continue to reap the benefits of for generations to come. And one of the ideas is you get, you get the information, oh, we're going to bring more jobs. But in reality, the, the jobs that are created, let's say in Montana, the jobs that are created from their pristine landscape and tourist is something like, I don't know, 64,000 people work at that. And then the jobs that are for these extractive kinds of uh, operations like mining and so forth, you know, it's, I don't know, 3,200 3, jobs or something like that. It's just it, the, the numbers don't match. But what I want you to really talk about is the idea of these people getting together in communities that this is local action. You said about this one man, this tribal chief, he has a local business and he's working with that and they're working local. As I say, it's an, I said in the intro, it's, it's less flashy and I think that those are your words. Uh, but communities um, do have power more than they know. And there's something that I had not seen before, and I, I read it in your book. You called it the um, DIT, like we know the do-it-yourself movement, which is kind of individualistic. And this one, the DIT, is do it together. 
I, I just love that idea. So can you say something about how powerful, what kind of power community has and what's your experience of that? Right. So we sort of talked about the power of being deeply connected to the land. And there's, there's lots more we could say about that. But there's also the power of being connected to one another as, as part of a community. And that means that, that, for example, we can count on one another. So when things look like they're going south, we can rely on one another to help each other out. I've been particularly struck by that as we've been looking at the new Trump administration coming into office and how many vulnerable people there are in our communities. And I think that one of the temptations is if you're in one of those vulnerable groups, and there's a lot of them, I think the temptation is to kind of withdraw and stay home and and you know maybe watch things on the internet or on television, but not take the risk of going out. And yet that's make, that makes us feel powerless and even more frightened. If we instead say to one another, wherever you are, I'm going to reach out to, you know, I'm going to reach out to the other people who I share this place with, and I'm going to let them know that I have their back, and I'm going to ask them to have my back. And we're going to get together and celebrate. We're going to get together and have potlucks. We may do some political work together. We may do some community building work together. But fundamental to all of that is knowing that we have each other's backs and that that, that provides the foundation for, uh, for security, for safety, and for joy. Because we have, a, we have an almost toxic level of isolation in our culture today. There's, um, the, the studies show that, f- that people have fewer and fewer people in their lives who they can trust with their secrets. And that, that's, uh, the other studies show that that kind of isolation is as toxic as cigarette smoking. It, it shortens people's lives. It, it certainly lowers the quality of their lives. So this is something we need to be doing regardless of whether there's a political question at stake. It's something we need to be doing just for our own well-being. But when we do it well, we also start finding our power. We start realizing that we can hold our member of Congress accountable. We can get the kinds of policies that we want in our community. We can build new things, new structures, cooperatives, or community farms. We can build those things that we want in our community because we, we can stick with it with, together. And that, that is a foundation for getting an extraordinary amount of things done. And I'm just thinking, too, it's just, it's not that you have to get a whole lot of people. Just start. Just start to get to know your neighbors. And as you said, isolation is a huge thing these days. And it's not good for our health. It's not good for our community. It is not good for our planet. It's not good for anything. Isolation just makes us more afraid. That's right. And we tend to turn on each other rather than toward each other. So you are encouraging throughout your work and throughout your travels, you have found it very encouraging when people start to come together. And, you know, I'm reminded of um, how in the rainforest there are, are certain vines that by themselves would just die out because they can't reach the sunlight uh, past the canopy. and But what they do is they start to join with other vines, and they start wrapping around each other, and they just keep wrapping, and they start to grow taller and taller as they get stronger and stronger with their intertwining. And they're, they're as big as a tree trunk. I mean, they get huge, and they're actually just vines. And finally, they break through the canopy. And... 
I kind of think of that as people getting together, and maybe it's one or two vines, and then another one joins another. So it, as, can you say something about the power of that? Sure, yeah. I love that metaphor. I think that's beautiful. But the phrase, do it together, D-I-T, I actually got from someone I interviewed in Detroit, and a lot of people think of Detroit as a, you know, a basket case, a, a city that's just um, beset by social ills. And yet I find it one of the most exciting places in the country. The, the creativity there is just extraordinary. The, the deep understanding of movement history, of political history, of where we are in human history right now. Um, I just, I just, every time I visit, and I went, was just there on my book tour, every time I visit, I learn things. So one of the people that I, uh, that I interviewed, Halim Kassel, used the term, do it together for the work that she loves to do. She's an artist, and she said, I, I love doing art, and I love giving away art, and I hate paperwork, so there are these people I can exchange with. You know, they'll do, do, do my paperwork for me, I'll give them art everybody's happy. So she's very interested in the whole notion of swapping and time banks so that you can actually keep track of how the swaps work out. She, she has children, so she, she sets up these swaps so people can exchange kids' clothes. When the kids outgrow one set of clothes, they can inherit other clothes from other people. She's, uh, she's involved in so many things, everything from uh, a, a, an organization in De- based in Detroit that helps set up worker co-ops to a, uh, an organization called uh, Focus Insight Fab Labs, which does three-dimensional printing using computer-aided design. So some of it's very simple and, and something we could have been doing for centuries, and other things are right at the technological cutting edge. But they all have in, in, in common that notion that we can do extraordinary things together that we really can't do by ourselves. Right. And I'm thinking you're just mentioning like the swap meets. And I'm thinking of the difference between the extractive economy and the restorative economy. So can you say something about those two economies? Yeah. So an interesting example would be um, the way that Uber, for example, is considered part of the sharing economy. But really, there's there's an attempt to extract value from each of the times that an Uber driver picks somebody up. And, um, and some, some folks have the potential, and maybe they already are getting very wealthy as a result. So there's an extractive element from that. And that's, you can contrast that with a group that I just visited in Madison, Wisconsin, the union co-op cab company, uh, worker-owned cab company, so they work together to make sure that they each can be paid well. They make sure that everything they do is for the benefit of the community as well as the planet. So they're in the process of, they've, they've converted most of their vehicles over to Priuses, but now they're working on trying to take the next step to make them plug-in hybrids and building solar, solar panels on their garage roofs so that eventually they'll be able to run their calves off the sun. So, and there, there have been a really important force in the, in the city of Madison in terms of, of helping other people, low-income people who haven't had access to an ownership share in the economy to be, form their own worker co-ops so that they can have that benefit as well. 
So they have some skin in the game, so to speak. That's right. And they really get loyal to that and really want it to work in a different way than if they were working for someone else. That's right. They have that skin in the game, and they also have the capacity, the opportunity to build wealth because that is so important if you're going to be able to have a resilient way of life to know that over time you're building the value of a company, but you're also building your share of it which means you can invest in things like your children's college education or owning a home or your own retirement. And that's so much different than if you're just being paid a, a, enough to basically get by day by day, but not to put anything So aside. that's something to look at in, in, um, in a local economy. Where can we find um, companies that might be owner-shared cooperatives, so to speak? I'm here with Sarah Van Gelder. She's the co-founder of Yes Magazine, and the author of The Revolution Where You Are, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Sarah Van Gelder. She's the author of The Revolution Where You Live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. And Sarah, I, we, we just talked about the possibility of, of owner, shared ownership of businesses, uh, cooperatives. That's, that's a pretty big step. Um, I want to go to a smaller step. If, if people are in their own community and we said, okay, don't isolate, uh, congregate, so to speak, okay? So um, how do you do that? And I know you speak about this in the book, and uh, I know in my experience it really works. There's something, we'll call it the food economy, and it's about growing food together. So what can you say about that? So it turns out that food has such an important role in all of this. The, the most basic is that when we break bread with somebody else, we tend to bond with them at the same time. So the simplest version of using food to connect is simply to have a meal with someone or just even a coffee with somebody. There's something about doing that that allows us to connect far better than, for example, social media. I think we have way too much communication on social media. We don't, that doesn't evoke the empathy and the heart-to-heart -heart contact of being in person with somebody, preferably with food in the picture. And then the next, the next bigger, bigger version of that is the, is the potluck, of course, or other ways of bringing more people to the table. But yes, it, it gets back then to the question of growing food, which I think is one of the first places people start thinking when they think about the new economy and when they get worried about the future. Because one of the first questions we always ask is, well, if, if the economy falls apart, how am I going to eat? And for, for that and all sorts of other reasons, I think people are, are, have, have gotten very interested in the local food movement. It's also more delicious, right, to have food that's, that's local. So there's so many ways of going about that. There's everything from putting a pot on your balcony and growing tomatoes 
to um, you know turning your entire lawn if you if you have a lot into a, a garden, to turning empty lots in your city in Detroit. There's an, a great deal of that. There's so much empty land. People just started farming it. Um, th- and then the next the next phase beyond that is can you turn that into part of your economy, not only as a way to eat food and share it with other people, the food that you grow, but can you ma- start making a living doing that? So in various parts of the country, I encountered people doing something called food hubs, where they actually bring together the food from various different sources, a lot of small farmers or even backyard gardeners, and then sell it to some of the big customers like universities or schools, folks that need every day to have a source of food. And it's it's up to that group in that hub to make sure that they can get that regular supply. And that also means that those small farmers don't have to spend their time in a farmer's market selling the food themselves, although those are great too. The next layer up of that is incubators. Can you help folks that want to produce something that's processed, can you get them access to a commercial kitchen so that they can make soups or jams or salsas and sell them at a farmer's market or sell them through other commercial channels? So there's all these different layers of the food economy that are unfolding in different ways all over the country. Of course, then there's the the retail. In Greensboro, North Carolina, I visited a place where they're putting in a brand new food co-op right in the middle of the African-American community an area that has been a food desert in the sense that it's been difficult to get access to food in those neighborhoods except through you know the convenience stores and the liquor stores that often have very high fat and sugar quantities and all processed too and all processed and so they're saying no we need we need access to good quality organic food and we're going to own it ourselves so instead of just calling folks members of this co-op they're they're being very clear you are an owner member of this co-op so it's interesting yeah. in Greensboro because Greensboro has this incredible history in the civil rights movement where, where back in the 60s, four African-Americans sat in at the Woolworths uh, lunch counter to, to try to get service and were not served. And now, all this many years later, the African-American community will be owning their own lunch counter. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Uh, I, and I'm, I can think of all these farmer markets that are popping up everywhere. Almost every community has a kind of farmer's market where people bring their goods, they set up their tables and their, you know, their artistic goods and their food goods and all, and there's music playing. It's such a grand way to get people together in, in, it's, it's very celebratory. It is. It is. I think that's one of the things I was so struck by is how many of these kinds of occasions unleash all this joy. You don't see the same thing when you're walking down the sterile corporate grocery store aisles. But at a farmer's market, you're, you know, you're, you're finding these wonderful fresh sources of food and you're meeting the farmers and you're meeting your neighbors and you're listening to music and maybe you're flirting with somebody or <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah, you're right. catching up with, you know, yeah. somebody who just had some children and you, you, you know, so there's so many thing, ways that we reconnect in those settings and th- that's so much how we evolve to be, right? We evolve to be in those kinds of daily or weekly contact with our neighbors and, and friends and farmers markets are just they're just marvelous for bringing all that together. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Whitesburg, um, Kentucky, which uh, it's kind of a unique place. Uh, so describe the culture there and 
how people from the outside have viewed it and and the devastations that they've had there and now how they're coming back from that. So Whitesburg, Kentucky is one community in what they call the coal fields of Kentucky, the the uh, region, the Appalachian region where coal mining was so dominant and still has enormous political sway, even though not so many jobs. And at this point, they are in that whole region. They're, they're still blasting the tops off of mountains and, and taking the debris and filling in the rivers and the creeks. And that's to get at the last remaining coal in that, in that region. Um, so it's an area that's been devastated by that legacy as well as by the black lung disease, which is actually making a comeback after years of being in decline. Um, so real, real problematic kinds of situations that they're facing. But Appalachia is also an area with an extraordinary history of music and, um, and art and theater. Uh, the, the thing that makes Whitesburg so interesting is it's the home of Apple Shop, which is an organization started a few decades ago to do filmmaking of Appalachia by Appalachians. So rather than have outsiders come in and say, oh, here's those, you know, pathetic people who don't have indoor plumbing, this is people telling their own stories and the dignity that goes with people being able to tell where they come from and how they see themselves. So that's what Apple Shop has been doing for years. And fostering or bringing out the innate creativity that has been part of that culture. Exactly. For for centuries, actually, now. That's right. They have an art gallery. They have a theater there. They, um, they have this beautiful archive of the films that they've created. They have a radio station. So one of the stories I tell in the book is about the radio station, which reaches, uh, reaches seven different jails and penitentiaries because part of Kentucky's economic development strategy as coal has declined has been to build prisons and jails. And that has meant people from the urban Midwest transported many miles away from home to be placed in those, in those prisons. And this radio station they have, they, they decided they need to serve that population. So they have a weekly program they called Hip Hop from the Hilltop. And one of the things that, uh, that they realized, they realized that that was their target audience. But at one point, someone called in and asked to convey a message to one of the inmates who was in, in the prison. And they realized there was, a, there was a need to help that communications channel flow. People don't realize that it's very expensive in private prisons to call out. It costs them a lot of money. That's right. It's amazing when you find this out. So go on with your story of this radio station, how they were circumventing that. So they decided every Monday they open their their uh, telephone lines and record messages for people behind bars from their relatives and loved ones wherever they are. And then they take all of those messages and they splice them together into an hour-long program. So immediately after Hip Hop from the Hilltop, you'll just hear one message after another. You know, your sister had a baby or keep your chin up. We're thinking about you. We love you. And we're hoping you'll come home soon. So these messages of love and support from all over the country for the people behind bars. And of course, you'd expect it would be very popular for the people who are, who are locked up. But it's also been quite an eye-opener for the predominantly white Appalachian population 
who are coming to understand through this the humanity of the people that they share this region with, albeit people who are sharing it unwillingly behind bars. So it's one of the ways that Apple Shop, I think, is is not just trying to take people backwards to a history where there was, frankly, a lot of racism. They're trying to take people forward, really trying to help people understand the humanity of everyone. I, when I read that, uh, Sarah, uh, I burst into tears. I, I, it just caused me to, I just, tears were rolling down my cheek when I read that because it's such a beautiful expression of how we love one another and we want to be helpful to one another and we have this innate capacity for great empathy for one another. And uh, this is just one of those examples of, of how it can be demonstrated in a real concrete way. Uh, and there, there can be others that we can find in our own community. Uh, you know, just looking, looking at the whole immigration movement when we, there are people that are coming from war-torn uh, countries and terrible, terrible poverty or, or, or just terrible situations and coming, not coming willingly. They don't, people don't want to leave their own land. So how can we be of help there rather than just sort of right now the the cultural way of looking at it is to be scared and wanting to, to close the borders and wanting to stop this. Yet there's this other part of, at least here in America, that is, looks at it very differently. That, that this open-hearted, we all realize that so many of us, if we're not of Native American background, we too were immigrants of some sort. So is there something that you can say about, about what you've noticed, the practical applications yeah. of anything? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think we sometimes forget that, that all the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism— all call for us to welcome in the stranger. And there are a lot of faith communities in North America who are doing that very actively, who are taking it upon themselves to, to host particular refugee families and help them resettle. And on this road trip that I was on for the book, I, was, I happened to be in Dallas, Texas, right when three Syrian families, refugee families, were due to arrive in the entire state of Texas. One of those families was going to arrive in Dallas, Texas. So in just one moment, we're going to find out what happened for that family. I'm here with Sarah Van Gelder. She is the author of The Revolution Where You Live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Sarah Van Gelder, and she's the author of The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. And we're talking about a, a family of refugee family arriving in Dallas. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, so they were due to arrive right around the time I, was, I happened to be arriving there. And at the same time, the, the governor of Texas was in the midst of suing uh, the Obama administration at the time to keep them from coming in. This family was two grandparents, two adults, and two children. And you know, I was curious why. What was what was the response from ordinary people in, in Dallas? I'd seen a video of one big congregation where the minister was just railing against this family because they came from a religion that he was equating with with devil worship. Um, and I was wondering, is that how other communities of faith were seeing it. So I went to visit on I went to visit three different faith communities over the course of one Sunday and I found that there's a very different view uh, among many. I I don't know what the numbers are but on these three communities that I visited one of them in particular was just um on fire about welcoming in this family and any refugee family. The minister actually stood at the front of the congregation with this little tiny yellow plastic bowl full of change and he said, you know, this this he gave the name of the, the young girl, but she said this this girl has collected some money that she wants to pass along to the family and because that's what her way of showing support. And these these ministers and their congregations were also planning to go to a mosque in Irving, Texas, that had been picketed regularly by by um, people who opposed their presence there. They were planning to go out there because they'd heard the Ku Klux Klan was also going to be doing a rally, and they wanted to make sure to counter that. So it was so interesting to me to hear that even in the places that we think of as the centers of red state activism, there are these people who just have this profound compassion for, for other human beings and aren't allowing the fear the fear-mongering of you know of these of these families that are that are escaping tragedy themselves, not allowing that fear-mongering to take them over, but really staying true to their own faith traditions. I think, Sarah, what you've done with this journey that you've taken and you've you've chronicled it for us in the, in the form of this book, "The Revolution Where You Live," uh, is that. You're showing that these are. This is a movement that is is happening. We don't see it reported as much in the mainstream media, for sure. So you you think that nothing is happening, and I think of it as a kind of tipping point. I know at at some point you talk about Archimedes, and uh, he had a quote about. The um, give, me, give a me a lever, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. And I'm I'm thinking about the quote that our listeners have heard me mention from Gary Snyder. He said, "Know your watershed as one of the most ecological thing that you first step, so to speak." Now, after reading your book, Sarah, I'm thinking about. That 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 the the place that give me a place to stand. What Archimedes was talking about. If I had that place to stand, know your community. 
that that is a major piece. And that can be a tipping point. When you put all of these together and you've just just highlighted a few here and there. I mean, even though there are quite a few that you've reported, but but it's there's so many more. And so what I'm saying here is uh, this is no small thing. So I'd love for you to share with us your view on what is actually taking place. What I think is taking place is that our old way of living and our old story about how we want to live is in collapse. It, the institutions that go with it are in collapse. The, uh, the corporate system, the notion that we're going to get happiness through consumerism, the individuality, the, the violence that goes with it, the racism that goes with it, all of those things are in collapse and something else is emerging and that's what I think is so exciting. I think most people can see evidence of the collapse. It's, it's pretty clear. But what they don't realize is that something else is emerging. And the way, the way it's emerging is in community. Because as smart as we are as individuals, there's something magic that happens when we come together. There's something that's beyond the sum of the parts. We can, we can do extraordinary things, and we can create different institutions, different culture, different stories about who we are and what's important. We can do that when we work together. So that's, that's what I'm on fire about. I think that that's, that's happening, and I think it can happen even more strongly. Uh, my plan is to create a platform so that people can communicate among communities and teach each other what they're learning. And that that way, that evolution of a new kind of society can be jump-started. Not, it can't happen from the top down, right? I mean, there's just no way that evolution can happen because one person has a great idea and everybody adopts it, or even worse, because one person forces people to adopt it. Those, those methods are just nothing but horror shows. They're not sustainable. They're not sustainable. They result in huge, uh, just huge pain as different groups of people are excluded from somebody's picture of what should happen. The only way it can happen is bottom up. The only way it can happen is in the communities that make up our, our society and learning from one another and learning from one community to another community. So I'm really on fire about that. I think it's happening, and I think we can, we can make it happen faster, and we desperately need to, because this climate crisis is rolling out incredibly quickly. Exactly. We, we, we need to be getting on top of this. And because I think the, the, the emergence of a figure like Trump is really a symptom of just how far the collapse has gotten. We can't afford to, to continue with that kind of notion of governance. So I think, I think this is our moment, and I think people are on fire to do it, too. There's an awakening that has happened since the election. People saying, I can't outsource my activism. I can't wait for somebody in Washington, D.C. to solve this for me. I have to be involved. I have to be involved where I live, and I'm ready. That's what I'm hearing all so over the country. So you're, you're encouraging us, don't, don't wait. Don't wait. Do it now. F- start to participate in your local community in some way. And everybody has their own kind of niche to something that that they're excited about, something that that ter- that lights them up. And I know at the end of your book you have 
you, you just did this wonderful thing. It's uh, called uh, 101 Ways to Reclaim Local Power. And you just go down a whole list, one, two, three, and uh, the, the different sections in it are build bridges. Another section is contact. Uh, so these are some of the, the ways that, and you list all these things. And I know as I went down this list, I could see a couple of them for myself. I'd say, oh, that's mine. That one, oh, I like that one. That one I can do. And, and I just start to get the feeling and a, a vision of how I, I know how to begin it. I know the first step I need to take, just reading it as I watch my heart just kind of leap up and I think, oh yeah, I could call so-and-so. And you know, I, I just, I encourage everyone to pick this up and it's a wonderful guidebook, so to speak, and, and inspiration to, to start to move toward this now. So do you have anything to add to that? I kind of well, went on a riff. I went on a riff there. But uh, uh, if, if you have anything to add to that about uh, place-based communities and, and exactly what you mean, that is a term that you yeah. use. Well, thank you for saying that. And, and the list includes things as simple as, you know, take a walk and say hello to the people you meet on the street. So things as simple as something you could do today, all the way to things that involve creating whole new institutions like a uh, converting a defunct warehouse into a, into a cooperative with living and working spaces for artists. So, you know, things that are really ambitious, things that are really easy. I think the main thing is just what you said to start, to start with the thing that draws your heart, where you feel like where you are, but also where you see that connecting with where your community is. Each community is in a different place. Each person's in a different place. So where, where is that intersection for you? The only thing that I would add to that is I think it, given the times we're in, we always need to be thinking about who's left out and always doing the extra outreach because our society has become so segregated. We have to make the extra effort, not just to, to be with the people who are just like us, but to find ways of building the bridges with the other people we share our community with. And I know that you've done a lot of work with that in, in your own life, in your own being, and in your own communities. And, and it's not easy. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, to be with people who think differently or come from a different background, who have different woundings that, that we have not, I have not experienced, and to be truly empathetic and be a deep listener. Maybe just shut our mouth and listen, <laughs> you know, those of us who are talkers. Well, that's that's one thing to do. But the other thing is to share your own experience from your heart. I think in the progressive world, we tend to talk so much from our heads, and sometimes we forget to just tell our own stories. Well, may it be so. May we, may we get together, tell our stories, and and really become more cohesive communities that help the health of the planet, help the health of all species, and all the, as Bill McDonough would say, all the children of all the species for all time. So I want to thank you so much, Sarah, for being part of the New Dimensions program today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. Sarah Van Gelder is the author of The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from 
a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, revolutionwhereyoulive.org, O-R-G. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3606. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.